Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to another episode of The Rest is Politics with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Rory Stewart. And loads to talk about, Rory. Labour on the Constitution... Quite a few Tory MPs jumping ship, strikes growing, cost of living crisis growing as it gets colder, gets colder, even colder in Ukraine. And I know you want to talk about Ghana, and I've got an interest there too, but also I'm fascinated by this story in South Africa with uh, President Ramaphosa in real political trouble, it would seem, due to somebody finding half a million dollars down the side of his sofa. But you look to me like you're in an airport again. Yeah, so I'm, I'm calling with huge apologies. And, and actually, Alistair, for those of you listening, is being incredibly patient. I've cancelled his training this morning. I've delayed this by about an hour and a half while I've been fighting with tickets and passports. And I, I'm trying to get to Doha to take my kids to watch, inspired partly by Alistair. We're going to go and watch the, uh, the game between Japan and Croatia this evening. Uh, so maybe just quickly before we get on to serious stuff, what's your tip for Japan, Croatia? Uh, they're both pretty strong, actually. Um, that's a hard one to call. I think, I think we could be into our first extra time game, actually, um, and even penalties. You might have a, a late night, Rory, pretending that you like football. Very good. Okay. Taking a seat for one of those Japanese fans who can't get in tonight. I hope you feel guilty. <laughs> well, Alistair, t- t- tell us, tell us um, a little bit about what you think. So this, for, for listeners who um, maybe haven't been following every detail of this, Gordon Brown was commissioned to come up with a series of quite bold constitutional changes for Labour. And Keir Starmer is a bit ambiguous. He's, on the one hand, there are a lot of headlines today saying he's embracing them. And on the other hand, it seems as though he's not quite committing to take them on until he's consulted. Yeah, I, I think, do you know what I think has happened? I could be wrong about this, but my sense of how this has gone is that Labour understand, I think, that the Constitution is in pretty serious need of change. Um, he, he's asked Gordon to do it because Gordon has got a big, restless mind. And I think what's interesting, what I've seen about the coverage so far, is that, is that it's being very much linked to the economy, to the fact of the need to regenerate the, nation, the nations and the regions and make people feel that as the economy hopefully gets into some sort of recovery, the whole nation benefits. And I think what happened was this, that Keir went along to brief the House of Lords, the Labour peers, um, about some of the content some of them very unhappy at the idea that their perks and privileges might be removed in a, in a sort of abolished House of Lords. So I think the whole thing was kind of briefed out as if that was the only thing in this and that was the only thing that really mattered. And I think what Keir's trying to do today, I just heard um, an interview that he did this morning where he's trying to kind of say, say that it's, it's about much more than the House of Lords. And at the same time, I think he's always, I think this is quite sensible actually, because it's a, I know what Gordon's like. Gordon will have absolutely put huge amounts of change into this. It's what he used to do when he did his own reports about Gordon was always brilliant at the politics of wanting something to happen. And then he'd, he'd get a report commission that the report would be big and bold. And then he'd sort of, he'd end up by taking bits and leaving other bits and doing what he'd wanted to do in the first place. And I think what Keir's doing, 
I think quite sensibly, actually, is saying, well, we do now need to go and discuss this because I said to you last week, when we reformed the House of Lords, it was incredibly difficult once you got into the into the detail. But I think there's a lot in here that you should like because it's about more power to local government. It's about more power to elected mayors. It's about a big program of devolution. And I think that, that there's a, you know, it will be, the devil will be in the detail, but I, I don't buy this idea that it's sort of the store, the big story out of this is will Keir accept it all or not. I think it's a, I think it's a very big step in the right direction. One of the things we'd love to see, of course, is whether he'd ever be prepared to look at electoral reform, which is the way of unlocking the question of how to get new parties into parliament and open up, take off some of the death grip of Labour and Conservatives. I'm, as we've talked about previously, I'm increasingly convinced that the real problem with these parties is the way they select their MPs, the kind of way it works at the local party association level, the kind of killer stranglehold they have on people who can actually make it through. And I'm for some reason, a lot of friends of mine are running to be Labour MPs at the moment and are finding it very, very difficult to make it through these local associations. Yeah, but there's a reason for that, Roy. You, you know, you, I, look, I agree with you. I think the parties are a big part of our problem. Um, but I think there's a ruthless edge to Keir Starmer, and he's getting a lot of criticism, particularly from the, the kind of hard left of the party, because he is taking quite a keen interest in the sort of candidates that are being selected. But I think it's, this is Labour being mindful of our history, our very recent history, where you know a lot of candidates got elected that uh, in part led to Jeremy Corbyn. Um, whether, you know, although I think Jeremy Corbyn is, you know, does have many, many political strengths, but leading the country was never going to be one of them. And it, it, it helped contribute towards that sort of terrible mess of 2019. And he's trying to fix that. I mean, I agree with you. I would love it. I mentioned last week, uh, I was actually got a message saying, you know, you know that thing where people say things which never happened. And I mentioned this 27, 27 year old who'd been trying to get a seat who couldn't. And, they said, and I said, well, what do you mean it never happened? He said, well, you didn't say his name. So I'm going to say his name. His name is Josh Simons. And I hope he gets a seat somewhere. And Mete Coburn, another one that, who, who, who's a social entrepreneur. He founded this wonderful organization, My Life, My Say, which if you'd have been mayor of London, you'd have had a lot to do with. And they're really about engaging young people and so forth. He's just failed in a bid to get a seat in Kensington. So it doesn't mean that the other candidates hopefully aren't good, but I, I agree it's very, very hard to work through the kind of who you know, how long you've known them, how long you've been around. And I just think our politics needs more young people. A lot of it seems to be with both parties and actually with the Lib Dems as well, a real testimony to how many years you've spent trudging the streets. There's often a big advantage if you've been a local councillor, if you've spent 20, 30 years in the machine. Many of these people were politicians at university. West Streeting, for example, was a politician at university. Therefore, it's more difficult. There's a lot of talk about how we'd like MPs who've done other things, have more experience in the world to come into politics. But it's surprisingly difficult to do because in a sense, it is a sort of profession. It's a profession where often you need to put in many, many years of hard work, pushing leaflets through doors to have a chance of actually mm. getting selected. You, you want to mix, don't you? you? You want people who've been around the block. You want people from different backgrounds. You want people from different parts of the country. You want people with lots of different experience. Um, I do think there's something a little bit identikit about, you know, you, you, you look at sort of, you know, if you say a classic Labour MP, you know, most people probably look at that and think, you know, male trade union background or whatever. But I think that's changing. Um, and, I, I, and likewise, I do think that, you know, in the, in the time that you came in, I do think that Cameron, did, David Cameron did try to bring in 
a kind of broader range of candidates. But I do, I really do think that I saw that the Conservative Party line on Keir Starmer's thing was to say, oh, while the country's worrying about cost of living, he's tinkering around about with things that people don't care about and that aren't important. But the sort of politics we have and the sort of government we have and the sort of country we are, I think people are, you know, I'm not saying it's like as important as the cost of living or as important as health or whatever, but getting a sense, I mean, I, I, tell you, I actually do think a lot of people, the thing I hear more and more now is people saying, the country doesn't work anymore. It doesn't, things aren't working. And that is about the machine. Sometimes that's about the machinery of government. And if you look at what's happening in Manchester, what's happening in, you know, and I would say Andy Street in Birmingham, I think has done a, you know, pretty good job. I think some of these elected mayors have really made a difference. Yeah. I think that's one of the most exciting things. And that's one of the ways that we're a long way behind a lot of our European, you know, allies. I mean, France has got so strong and vigorous a tradition of local democracy with mayors at a local level. Um, that also brings us to these MPs who've announced they're stepping down. So we're losing a lot of big labor beasts, aren't we now coming up? So Harriet Harman's announced she's going. Margaret Hodge is going, Rosie Winterton's going, Alan Whitehead's going, Ben Bradshaw's going. So it's, it's an interesting, it's going to be an interesting shift. That's going to be certainly the, the parliament that I joined. It will feel very different after the next election with particularly a lot of those senior Labour women leaving. Are we still in the the era of gallantry where we don't sort of refer to women's age? But I think age is a factor there. I told you I was at Harriet's... Um, the event at the speaker, speaker's house for Harriet's the celebration of Harriet's 40th year as an MP. So we're talking about age there, but I do think, look, it's, you, you have to have some churn. I think without churn, you just get the same old tired faces and people get fed up, fed up of it. But I think on the Tory side, I think I saw you did a very sympathetic tweet about Sajid Javid suggesting that his departure was a further sign that politics is so difficult and what have you. I really do think Sajid's sort of thinking, well, I, <laughs> I helped, I helped Sulak stab Johnson in the back and get rid of him. And I walked out with him and I'm no, not in the cabinet. We're probably going to lose the next election. I see the FT said he was already in talks about some big job. But the one that I found really interesting was the, Bishop Auckland. Dehenna Davidson. Dehenna Davidson, whose nickname apparently up north is Abba, anywhere but Bishop Auckland. Um, <laughs> but, but she's not even 30 yet, and she's gone in. She's been described as a rising star, and she's now leaving. And I wonder if that's because she's decided that either she's decided she's not going to make the top level, or she's decided that she's going to lose her seat, or she's decided that she's going to do a media career. And, of course, as an MP, as an ex-MP, and I, I'm having a lot of difficulty getting this across. It's amazing if you look at the Twitter feed when I say that one of the major reasons people are leaving, and, and this will apply also to some of the Labour MPs who are stepping down. I mean, they're, they're not all they're not all they're not all old. The Labour MPs who are stepping down. Ben Bradshaw maybe has been in a bit of a time, but we're losing John Crudders, who you wouldn't have thought would need to leave. Paul Bloomfield just got in in, in 2010 at the same time as me. Sheffield Central stepping down. That the basic truth is that it's a brutal profession, and. Mm. Twitter is unbelievably violently unsympathetic. And one of the reasons why it's such a brutal profession is the hostility towards MPs is beyond imagining. I mean, if you look through the feed, everybody assumes that the reason that Sajid Javid is leaving is because he's made either, it's actually very confused, they're very muddled. It's not quite clear whether they're saying it's because he's making so much money as an MP and it's such a cushy job, or because somehow having become an MP is suddenly going to allow him to make an incredible amount of money in his future career. The case of Sajid, that's absolute nonsense. Sajid's a really remarkable story. You know, famously, his dad came to Britain with a pound in his pocket, was driving buses. 
He went on to be the Asian manager for one of the largest banks in the world out of Singapore. He took a 98% pay cut to become an MP. Whatever he was doing, it's not about money. And it's very, very odd that everybody wants to somehow reduce people's motivation to money. That obviously, in the case of Sajid Javid, cannot be true. You know him, and I, d- I don't know him uh, well at all. But um, look, I think there's, it's a perfectly human calculation to make a political calculation. I, I, I imagine, look, if, he, if, if the Tories lose his seat, they really, really, really are in trouble. Um, but I think that there must be Tories who are sitting there thinking, I just can't put up with this anymore. And it's not, it's not, I don't think it's because of the hate. I'm sure that's a factor. But I, th- I just think if you're a conservative MP at the moment, I, just, I don't know, I, 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 I suspect it's simpler than any of us are giving credit for. I think he probably just sits there and thinks, look, I've done this long enough. I've had enough of it. I want to get out. And I don't blame him for that at all. I, well, I, I don't know. My, my sense is, and I, I was actually talking to somebody who's married to someone on the Labour, Labour front bench recently who was just talking about how unbelievably unpleasant it was. Very, very senior Labour MPs, family, just talking about how much they hated the job of being an MP. And Mm. I think many, many MPs are under huge pressure from their families to say, Mm. why on earth are you doing this? You're working very, very long weeks. You're getting abused all the time. doesn't matter whether you're Labour or Conservative. Everybody thinks you're an incompetent, inept, corrupt so-and-so who's idling in your constituency. Nothing Mm. you can do can turn that around. And families Mm. are going to say, why on earth are we putting up with this? Not because they're looking for a cushy life, not because being an MP allows you to get a better life, but many of these people genuinely had decent jobs before they entered and can get decent jobs on their own merit when they leave, and they can't understand where they're putting up with the abuse. Yeah. I th- well, I think that you're still, but back to the point about the candidates, you've still got more people who want to do it than, <laughs> than there are vacancies. Um, it's a, the question is whether we're getting the right people. Look, I do think this, I'm, I'm not under my... Um, I'm not underestimating the significance of all the the abuse, and maybe I'm I'm lucky in that I look. I've said to you before, I genuinely don't care what somebody whose view I don't have a reason to respect, i.e., somebody that just sort of I think is. I always imagine somebody sitting in their underpants on their mother's sofa, firing off abuse, or it's somebody doing it for political reasons. And I get why people get hurt by it, but I do think if you're in politics, I'm afraid you do have to develop a a bit of a thick skin for that stuff. Yeah, it's, but it's, I think that's right. But some of these people have been in touch, both Labour and Conservative MPs, because I've left politics to ask whether I think they should stay. And it is often difficult to cheer people up because it's not just the abuse on Twitter. It's a relentless job. It's a job which, you know, however much people assume that it's unbelievably well paid, it's is paid roughly what that? a GP or a head teacher is paid, slightly less actually than some GPs and head teachers. And I think um, that it's sad in a way that, that, that in, in the old days, people really saw this as a lifetime of public service. And now people are struggling to feel that. But, but Rory, you, you mentioned GPs there. I mean, G, GPs get tons of abuse, which they never used to. And I think that's worse in a way, because I think that, um, you know, if you're a politician, I think there's always been through history before social media, you know, you have robust debate. But I, I think the abuse that I see now being channeled, which I, I think is largely media-driven with a bit of encouragement from government, um, but it's disgusting because these are people who literally, who, you know, who we need to keep us well, to keep us alive. And there's so many of them are being put off by this relentless abuse. And that's not social media. That's mainstream media, I think. Yeah. 
It's a lot of that, isn't it? And, and even face to face if you're a teacher. Now, could we take a break there so that I can get on to the next stage of this flight and then just pick it up in, in three minutes, please? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Thank you. All right. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kaye, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy, and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the most difficult to record episode of The Rest is Politics we have ever had with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Rory Stewart. And Alistair showing an extraordinary patience, which he's not often famous. You haven't seen me when you've been at the various stages in between our recordings. (laughs) We started, let me, let me just, if I can use one of your favorite phrases, if we just loop back a bit. (laughs) So it started with you in, was it Amman Airport? Uh, yep, Amman Airport. Amman Airport. And we started, we, we got through a bit there. That was fine. And then the next thing I saw you in a rather crushed economy seat on a flight. And we gave that a go for a few minutes. And now I think you're in another airport lounge in Doha. No, in Doha. Yeah. And the, the reason for this comedy is that I got to the boarding gate with my two little kids and my wife. Uh, only to find the three of them were allowed to board. And I wasn't allowed to board because some amazing app from the Qatari government had collapsed in my hands. So I saw my three family members take off. And I thought I'm going to get killed by Alistair because now instead of landing and doing the podcast, I'm going to be faffing around in the airport when I should have been doing it. Oh my God. So so it's it's actually, you're making me feel it's a a little bit like Home Alone with Macaulay Culkin. You you were padded to bear last week. Now you're Macaulay Culkin. The whole thing is, was very embarrassing. Anyway, thank you for your patience. Um, so you were just taking us into Nadim Zahawi, his defense of uh, policies on nurses and strikes and Putin. I think it was the thing that was most asked about was his extraordinary interview where he basically said that, you know, the nurses and others shouldn't go on strike because it will give a big boost to Vladimir Putin. 
I mean, the Putin is sitting there thinking, hey, Boris, come and tell me where what has happened in the RCN ballot. I mean, this is. I mean, do they do these people really think we're just stupid? And you keep, Rory, you keep telling me this guy's clever. He's a friend of yours. I keep saying that I like him very much. Yeah, it's a very very difficult thing when you leave politics. So there were very few MPs that I liked. And I, I've talked about some of them on the show. And uh, many of them I thought were absolutely awful. But Nadim Zahabi, I traveled with a bit in the Middle East. I thought he was a very, very cheerful, good-tempered, patient companion, great kind of breadth of experience. I love his personal story. Came from Kurdistan as a, a child. And I traveled with him through Iraq. But but you're absolutely right. This was not not his greatest moment. And we've now we've now got the even the the I say even, but the people who are working at Shelter, the housing charity. Uh, the talk of a strike there because they say they can't they can't afford to get a house. This is bad, 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 and 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 I don't get the feeling that the government really understand it. I was with um, uh, a council leader, uh, Georgia Gould. I went skating yesterday. Or if you wanted to see me in, embarrassed in a sporting context, then you should have been at Somerset House yesterday because it was. Georgia was Georgia was saying that, and I think this is a story that's echoed by MPs and by councillors and that. People are now coming in with literally, particularly now it's getting a bit colder, it was freezing in the Lido this morning. They're, they're coming in with real ap- stories of absolute heartbreak. The old cliche, heating or eating, it is happening now for an awful lot of people. And the government doesn't seem to me to get a grip of it at all. I think there's a couple of problems on that. I mean, firstly, is that the rise in prices, the inflation is crazy. And of course, when we talk about whatever the headline figure is, and every month it maybe shifts from 7 to 9%, it doesn't capture the fact that many important bits of someone's life can be going up much more. Certain kinds of mm. foods can be going up much, much more steeply than that. And of course, if you're on a low income, food is a much higher proportion of your, your monthly expenditure than if you're on a higher income. So people are really suffering. But at the same time, of course, the government is under huge pressure not to increase wages more because they're worried that will fuel inflation even more and create even more problems next year. And we'll get back in the same cycles we were in the 1970s. So they are trapped. And this is going to be one of the contributing factors to why the conservatives are likely to lose the next election. They're trapped in a situation where they are forced all the time to look as though they are cruel and uncaring. But part of that, and obviously people listening to this may think that simply is because they're cruel and uncaring, but part of it is also they'll be under pressure from the Treasury and the Bank of England to try to control rises in, in wages to stop inflation. Mm, yeah. Uh, while you were um, on the Second, between the second and third stages of, of our podcast recording, I, I used the time to, I read a bit of, I read the Der Spiegel. And the, one of the stories there was that the UK, which was fifth in the list of German trading partners, has now fallen out of the top 10. Extraordinary. And it was tweeted out by the German ambassador. It was in a very striking move. It's fascinating. Oh, I didn't how, see that. I didn't see yeah, that. Yeah. Actually. Oh, right. yeah, the first, first news of this, I think, came from the German ambassador sending it as a tweet, a real sign of how increasingly embassies are being quite provocative and cheeky on Twitter. Well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you another thing that I think does relate to Brexit. And one of my favorite questions that we got this week was whether I, there will ever be an episode of The Rest is Politics where I don't at some point bang on about Brexit. And the answer is probably not. But I think the other thing that's, that's related, do you not think that when Margaret Thatcher was prime minister, when Tony Blair was prime minister, that if the first state visit to an incoming United States president was one of the French president, that there would have been absolute meltdown in our diplomacy, in our media. Um, and yet it happened. Last week, we had Macron going to see Biden. 
and Biden, you know, being pretty flattering to the old French. And yet, I and I do think, I think there's no getting away from it. We are now, a de- if, the fact that they haven't, it wasn't even in the debate about, oh, shouldn't it have been the British Prime Minister? It wasn't even in the debate because hmm. we've chosen our own decline. Well, it, it's and it's interesting how much US perspective on this has been shifting for some time now. Paradoxically, there was a, a small boost with Donald Trump, who, uh, along with his many other strange views in the world, remains a very pro-British and anti-other European countries. So there was a little sort of delayed moment, but definitely- well, Hold on, he was, vi- yeah. he was vile to your friend Theresa May. He was utterly vile to our ambassador, who, thanks to Johnson, got sacked. And he even tried to walk in front of her dearly beloved departed Her Majesty the Queen, which you do all, not all, do. All, all, all that's true. Nonetheless, he managed to keep a sort of slightly artificial- um, position for Britain in relation to other European countries in Washington. But I noticed that I I talked a lot to Hillary Clinton's team when they were running against them. And I remember them already very clearly signaling, uh, I guess that's 2016, that they no longer saw Britain as their key ally in Europe. Mm. They were actually much more uh, focused on Germany. I remember the head of her foreign affairs uh, team who was going to be their Secretary of State saying that they were going to focus on making the first state visit Germany. I mean, you saw that with... um the relationship that developed between Obama and and Angela Merkel. It was pretty spiky, though, the um, Biden-Macron meeting at points, because Macron did not hold back in saying that this huge Inflation Reduction Act, which is going to put billions and billions and billions of dollars into environmentally friendly industries, with a pretty much leaning towards American industries, and, and Macron, which is causing a lot of consternation in Europe, and Macron just called it out and said, listen, you know, you talk about partnership, but this is going to undo it. And we need, he used the word resynchroniser. I love that word, resynchronize. And, um, and, and Biden said they would kind of, they would look at it and they would see if they could tweak it. Um, so it was one of those things that was full of the whole, you know, state visit of the pomp and the showbiz and the all the food and the fancy clothes and all that stuff. But there was some pretty tough politics going on as yeah. well. But I just think it's sad that we, you know, we're not even considered in those discussions at the moment. It's also worth bearing in mind, there's, there's a small thing in the background too, which I remember diplomats raising with Liz Truss, British diplomats raising with Liz Truss um, when she was in the States at the same time as I was on, a, on one of her early visits as Foreign Secretary. And Remember that France felt very, very bruised because Britain and the United States and Australia had pushed oh, yeah, them out. Walkers, yeah, yeah, pushed them out of this uh, submarine deal. There was a real concern even then that America was going to bend over backwards to try to prioritize its relationship with France over Britain mm. to try to compensate for, for what had happened there. Other mm. thing that was interesting, Macron, which obviously goes to the heart of a lot of our conversations, is that he pushed hard in that meeting with Biden to say that any new security architecture in Europe, any new sort of post-NATO way of thinking about security in Europe, must take into account Russia's security concerns, in particular, Mm. where nuclear weapons are positioned, how close NATO gets to Russia's borders. And and in that, you can see Macron still remaining very, very distinct from the US, UK, and, Mm. and most of the rest of the European position, still, you know, as you pointed out in previous pods, calling Putin, looking for common ground. And it'll be interesting to see where we get there, because in the end, it all depends on the US. It's the US that's funding the whole thing, putting in nearly five times as much as everyone else combined. Yeah, he, he's getting, uh, he did a big interview on French television uh, last night, and he's getting 
quite a lot of bad press at the moment. I'm actually going to Paris on Thursday. I'm doing an event for Portland with Gérard Arrault, who you may know, who's the former French ambassador in Washington. And he, he, he had some very interesting comments about the, uh, the visit. He said that basically, for all the warm words, what Biden is talking about in this Inflation Reduction Act is a form of reinforcement of, of protectionism. Um, and also on the security, I think there is a bit of irritation. You know, we had this a lot during during Iraq and Afghanistan that, you know, even though I always felt we got a lot of the political heat, the truth is that the bulk of the funding and the military supply was coming from the United States. And and that remains the case with, with Ukraine. But Macron was getting a pretty bad press in France this morning from his comments about uh, this new, what they call this. Why, why, there was one, one of the editorialists saying, you know, why is he talking about new security architecture when Ukraine feels like it's on the front foot right now? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it is. It is interesting. I was I amongst all this comedy of travel. I was in Washington two days ago, and I was at a dinner. Um, and on the stage uh, was George W. Bush. Mm-hmm. And I'd love I'd love to get a little bit of of your reflections on him. He struck me as very very interesting. So obviously he's he's well retired. I I obviously have a lot of chips on my shoulder about him in relation to the Iraq War. Um, but he had a very interesting approach to things like Ukraine. So he was challenged directly from the room. Somebody said, you know, how can we continue to provide support for Ukraine when Americans are hurting at home? And he said, sure, Americans are hurting at home, but Ukrainians are hurting a lot more at home, which I thought was a a really, a kind kind of really deft way of articulating it, which I hadn't seen done well by other politicians. I trust, Roy, that you went up to him and said, um, oh, by the way, I, I do a podcast now with Alistair Campbell, who I'm sure you remember from your time uh, alongside working with Tony Blair, um, we'd love to have you on the podcast. I'm sure you did that, didn't you, Rory? I, I, I did not, and, and oh. I must. I'll try to find a way. So you're sorry, you were in the room. You yep. were in the room with George W. Bush, and I heard him do an Elvis impersonation too, which is like you. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to say, look, I get, I get. I, I didn't know you were going to ask about George Bush, and I get battered by my North London friends whenever I talk about George Bush because I found him at the human level incredibly likable. Uh, and also, I found him so much more intelligent and thoughtful in private discussions about foreign policy than he was whenever there was a TV camera there. Whenever there was a TV camera there, he sort of turned into this kind of cowboy mode. Um, he could be, he could say some pretty crazy stuff. Um, but I think at a, a, the human level, funny enough, that the, the and I've, I've finally submitted the manuscript of my book to the publisher this weekend uh that this is now going to the copy editor but i've talked about bush because i talked about him in the context of teamship which we were talking about um with helen clark about the importance of teamship and the, one of the impressions that bush made upon me was the he always when you were walking around the white house or you were walking around with his team and of course they have a vast team you know the security the aids the it's ridiculous how large that kind of american motorcade is that go with the president at all times you know doctors and ambulance drivers and all that stuff and he sort of he knew everybody and it wasn't just that he knew everybody both he and his wife laura would they'd always sort of they'd know what was going on in their lives so there'd be like a waiter or something who'd sort of put a plate down on his table and he'd say how did your son's driving test go and that would probably because the son the guy mentioned it a month ago or something you know he and he had that humanity now was he the was he a kind of did he have Clinton's oratorical skills? No. Did he have Lincoln's amazing leadership? No. Uh, you know, what, was he the, the brightest president that's ever lived? No. But I, in terms of, you know, we talk about wanting our politicians to be authentic and human. 
And I think the fact he's now gone away and he basically just paints all the time, I think it's sort of, I think that's to his yeah. credit. Well, he's incredibly, incredibly comfortable in this skin. I mean, I don't know any British politician who would be so good at taking the piss out of himself. Oh, he was very good at that. Yeah. So he'd turn up and he'd, he'd be like, <laughs> don't listen to me. I just ramble. I'm 76 years old. And then they'd say, well, we're not just here to pay honor to you. We're here to honor Laura Bush. And he'd say, I don't blame you. <laughs> and then they'd say, then they'd say, do you have any piece of wisdom for the room? And he'd say, yep, never paint your wife. <laughs> he, I mean, he was, he did, he was, he was very self-deprecating. And I think he, he had a sense of, of people thinking that his, his father was better at the job, but it didn't seem to bother him at all. I think he's one of those guys who's just not chippy about stuff. So I think the thing that he, I'm going to get he, lacerated for this, Roy. Yeah, well, not, not as lacerated. much as me. I'm praising him too. But I, I, so put on the record, I very much think that what he did in Iraq was a massive mess and a massive mistake and did a lot of damage. But there is something that I think he does deserve a lot of credit for, which maybe he doesn't get as much credit for, which is his PEPFAR program. So he introduced the big legislation for the US to come up with a support with antiretroviral drugs on HIV AIDS. Oh, yeah. And over the last 20 years, the US, largely through its own effort and energy, saved 20 million lives, mostly in Africa. And it did it completely cross-party. It was a brilliant thing, brought together both houses of Congress. And it's a kind of example of America having sometimes the energy and the ambition to do things that other countries wouldn't do to think on a bigger scale. Now, I want I I to switch to another politician we dealt with back in the day, um, but one who is still very, very much on the scene and an active politician, and that's President Cyril Ramaphosa in South Africa. Because he, if you remember, he was, a, he was quite an important player in the Northern Ireland peace process because along with the Finland Prime Minister, uh, Atisari, they were the two guys who were taken when it came to decommissioning weapons, they were the guys. We don't know where the weapons were. And actually they don't because they were sort of taken from pillar to post. And the, but they saw the IRA arm stashes. Um, so he was a big part of that whole process, partly because he was one of the few people that we could find who was trusted by most of the main players, including Sinn Féin. And why was that? Why, why did Sinn Féin trust him? What was the deal? There? I think because of the shared sense of struggle. They, they obviously had relations that had relationships that had developed. But also Atasari really liked him as well. Atasari really valued him, valued his judgments. Atasari was the Finn, right? He was the Finnish, um, former Finnish prime minister who became the kind of main go-to guy when we came to to the decommissioning process, which was probably the most, along with prisoner release, was probably the most one of the most fraught issues through, through the whole thing. So we had to get credible people who were respected, trusted, dare I say distinguished, and who <laughs> would then, and that we would trust to go into this process with the IRA, who would be taking them to show them where these weapons were, what, what they were, and also that they would be set up a process so that if they were revisited, even though they didn't know necessarily where they were, they could tell whether they'd been used or tampered with. And so that was him then. And now he's the president. And he's he actually became president because Zuma, his predecessor, was seen as pretty corrupt. And Ramaphosa won as, you know, he's going to clean up. And everyone was huge, hugely relieved because at the time, people weren't sure that he'd be able to pull it off. They thought Zuma had stitched up the ANC with his own allies and he'd never let yeah. Ramaphosa come through. So there was a huge sigh of relief. And of course, Sir Ramaphosa just did a state, we're talking about state visits, Absolutely. first state visit to Britain under, with the he new did. king, right? 
He did, and he and he went. He had his red sash on alongside Prince Charles's blue sash, and Camilla with her crown behind them, and all that. <laughs> and now he's kind of. I think as we speak, um, the ANC are, are having a two-day meeting to decide what to do because this. What happened was a, um, a former spy chief um, made these accusations against Ramaphosa that he'd covered up a burglary at his own house, from which. Um, the accusation was $2 million were taken. It turns out it was over half a million dollars. Um, there's been a, a, a pretty heavy, and it seems fair, it looks like it's not been sort of tampered with, these, this legal inquiry, and they've come out and they've basically said they they pretty made clear they don't believe the stories about where this money came from. Ramaphosa said it came from the sale of buffalo on his ranch. <laughs> and, he's, and he doesn't seem to have paid tax on it as part of the problem. Doesn't seem well, to it's down to any sofa, accounts. It's down, it's down the side of a sofa. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how do you put that one in your tax returns? Um, but it's sort of now, even if you accept that there's a, a history of of corruption, as there was with with Zuma, and and but even so, this feels like, and it feels very, very bad for the ANC because, because the ANC has has been in power since Mandela. Um, succession of, of presidents of varying abilities and varying success. Um, but this feels, I don't know, he says he's going to fight it through and he says this report's unfair, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it doesn't feel good for South Africa. Yeah. And, and meanwhile, South Africa economy has really been struggling recently. I mean, COVID was very, very bad for it. Economic growth down. I think it's for a country that's meant to be one of the great wealthy success stories of Africa still about a fifth of the population living in extreme poverty and the number rising. Mm. Bad deposition. I mean, this is something also maybe when we have a bit more time to talk about, because many, many countries in Africa have racked up a lot of debt recently. Ghana at the moment is nearly 40% of its government revenue is just paying off debt. You mentioned Ghana in one of our WhatsApp exchanges, and I was reading up on it. I mean, it's pretty horrific. Was I hadn't realized it was quite as bad as it is. And this is all because the Chinese have basically, China's got them over the barrel on debt. Yes, well, so China's been lending often quite cheap terms to many African countries, but of course, a lot of it has been on flexible interest rates, which people can't now service. And the, it's very difficult getting to the bottom of what's going on. So Ghana, again, was meant to be one of the great success stories of Africa. It was a place yeah. about which people felt optimistic. Um, small comical anecdote for the show. I sat with President Nana, who was the Ghanaian president, and Theresa May in a meeting in Downing Street. And it was lovely to see the, the tables turned. It was like the reverse of what you normally expect between a, a British prime minister and a Ghanaian prime minister, because Nana from Ghana leant over and said, Prime Minister May, I, I am wondering if there is anything that I can do to uh, ask you to reconsider your views on Brexit. I would like to counsel you to be more cautious <laughs> and thoughtful. <laughs> and I thought it was absolutely wonderful because it, it was, it's what we do go around the world lecturing everybody else on how to run their own internal affairs. And yeah. here was he turning it around. And there you go. And uh, sadly, she was unable to listen because of the, <laughs> the power of the ERG at the time. Now, Rory, the other thing, let's wrap up um, because you obviously have to get to a very important football match. And I know what a massive football fan you are. By the way, it's the round, the ball's round. Um, I'll, ex I'll explain the what's offside rule by WhatsApp, okay? And, and if, the, if the referee keeps running to watch your television, he's not watching your television, he's, he's, he's consulting the screen for the, with the video assistant referee, okay? He, he's not trying to catch up on neighbours. You've got that. You've got that. Now, while you were on the plane, I was trying to get, I was plowing through Gordon Brown's report on constitutional reform. And I think you'd be very, very interested in this bit. Um, we think it is right for the Scottish Parliament government to have greater powers 
to promote Scotland across the world, both to represent Scotland as a nation and to promote economic and social interests. We therefore propose the Scottish government, with approval, blah, 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 should be able to enter into agreements with international bodies insofar as they relate to devolved matters only. I found that very interesting. Yeah, I wonder what that would mean. So what do you think that might mean signing up to, I don't know, a UN environmental body or an ocean body or... Yeah, it, it, well, it says it, it actually lists examples would include in UNESCO, the Nordic Council, or if the EU were willing to agree, even the Erasmus scheme for student exchange. Ah, now, no, now well, we like that. All, we like that very we, much. We do. But Gordon <laughs> has always had this, I think it's fair to say, obsession with how Scotland can stay within the UK but have a sense, a deeper sense of its own identity and its own politics. And I, and, and I think it's, I'm really pleased when I read that, I thought, you know, at least he's thinking of that. I mentioned earlier, I think he's thinking about the economic consequences of devolution. He, he has to be right. He has to be right. And, and, and of course, in many ways, his speech was incredibly important in that, in the referendum. And so this very, very powerful emotional speech when oh, yeah. David Cameron really. was struggling to hit a really high emotional note mm. was hugely important. I, I think he's got to be right that the only way of imagining Scotland inside the United Kingdom is to really celebrate it as a nation, mm. celebrated its distinctiveness. But I also think, and I, I'd like to see what Gordon Brown's done in more detail in this report on this, but devolution needs to happen in Scotland too. It, it's not enough just to centralise all the power in Edinburgh. And there is a bit of a tendency towards that. There's now a single Scottish oh, sure. police service. There's a lot yeah. of curriculum being micromanaged. The border's very different from, from where your father came from. And I think it would be good to have a lot more devolution within Scotland as well. Anyway, listen, we, we now have to wrap this up because we are, in order for you to get to the game on time, we're going to do a very, very short question and answer session. Uh, but thanks for now. And we'll speak again very, very shortly. Bye-bye.